The American National Anthem, as interpreted by Jimi Hendrix, the closing act at Woodstock. Shut your eyes for a second and focus on an image in your memory from the 60s, whether you were alive then or not. Do you have an image in mind? Okay, hold on to it. We'll come back to the 60s in a little bit. But first, listen to some lines of poetry from the 50s, the 1850s, that is. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. Through me forbidden voices, voices of sex and lusts. Copulation is no more rank to me than death is. Lines out of Song of Myself, from Walt Whitman's great, ever-changing collection, Leaves of Grass. Did those snippets of poetry evoke any memory of the 60s? Perhaps the story of his life will. Walt Whitman's story is about poetry as prophecy. It's about the type of poet whose way of living is as influential as is his writing. Whitman was born in 1819 on the north shore of Long Island, not far from New York City. By most accounts, he lived a fairly unremarkable first 30 years, drifting in and out of various jobs in journalism, was frequently out of work. Just shy of his 30th birthday, he embarked on a trip around the country it was an America expanding and optimistic, absorbing immigrants, pushing westward, a young nation booming, heedless for the moment of the fault line swimming through it, slavery. He saw the sheer variety of humanity assembling in the U.S. in its beauty and its slave-owning bestiality. He watched people at work and nature in flow. He made love a lot. Something happened to Whitman out in America. From an ordinary journalist, he became a prophet. Leaves of Grass came out in 1855 with just 12 poems in it. Subsequent editions expanded as he transmuted his extraordinary experiences into poetry. Ultimately, there were 400 poems in the collection. During America's Civil War, he spent his days nursing the wounded of that bloody conflict. He wandered round the battlefields. He sat at their bedsides in hospitals. All that he saw and felt was crammed into the poetry poetry that was confessional, frank about love of men and women, formless and free, songs without music, some of the titles, Song of Myself, Song of the Broadaxe, Song of the Open Road. When he stopped singing and listened, he heard America singing back to him. It was poetry about a vision of America and the new man evolving there as the great harbinger of the future. For Whitman, this sense of the new man was best expressed in the word self. I dote on myself, he writes. Yourself, 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 forever and ever. Not God is greater than one's self is. This sense of self was an historical explosion. The American self, the self of the ordinary man expressed without interlocutor. It's the self of those whose impressions and feelings, whose whole history had been written for them by their betters. In America, 70 years after its founding by men of property and liberal concern, 
the common man, was finally taking full advantage of the guaranteed equality of his nation. It's a self that says, I am as important as the stars and a regular guy. That's how the poet defined himself. Walt Whitman, an American, one of the roughs, a cosmos, disorderly, fleshy, and sensual, eating, drinking, and breeding, no sentimentalist, no stander above man and women or apart from them, no more modest than immodest. The voice of Whitman's poetic self boils over as he tries to record every impression of the world around him, the emotions within him, as if trying to make up for centuries when the ordinary man would not have thought it was his right to feel and express such things. Form is the enemy of this poetic expression. Form for Whitman was something for Europeans to deal with. Song of Myself goes on for pages, sometimes totally out of control, listing impressions of sound or descriptions of people observed at their most ordinary moments, literally dozens at a time. The pure contralto sings in the organ loft, begins one section. The carpenter dresses his plank. The tongue of his foreplane whistles its wild ascending lisp. Two pages later, the list continues. The flatboatmen make fast toward dusk near the cottonwood or pecan trees, the coon-seekers go now through the regions of the Red River, or through those drained by the Tennessee. And finally, a half-page later, we get to the point, and these one and all tend inward to me, and I tend outward to them, and such as it is to be of these, more or less, I am. Whitman's skepticism about form is part of his general skepticism about received wisdom, the new American trusts his own sensory experience more than those of the most learned. One of the Oliver Nusson settings we're about to hear deals with this directly, when I heard the learned astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown in charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became, and tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Leaves of Grass wasn't unanimously praised. The Boston Intelligencer's reviewer took a sledgehammer to the book. The beastliness in the author is set forth in his own description of himself, and we can conceive of no better reward than the lash for such a violation of decency. He must be some escaped lunatic raving in pitiable delirium. The Brooklyn Times took a more charitable view. Very devilish to some, and very divine to some, appear these poems. The equanimity may owe something to the fact that Whitman himself wrote the review. In fact, Whitman was taken up by the philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, but he never became entirely respectable. After the Civil War, in recognition of his work with the wounded, he was given a job in the U.S. Department of the Interior. But when the Interior Secretary found out the author of Leaves of Grass was on his payroll, he fired him. Whitman knew his work would have a greater meaning for those who came later. Thirty years after the first appearance of Leaves of Grass, he wrote, I consider Leaves of Grass and its theory experimental as in the deepest sense I consider our American Republic itself to be. The volume is a sortie. Whether to prove triumphant and conquer its field of aim, nothing less than a hundred years from now can fully answer. 
about a hundred years on, the answer was being written, and old Walt even anticipated how and where the answer might come. Democracy, most of all affiliates with the open air, is sunny and hardy and sane only with nature, just as much as art is. We must be in heaven, man! There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. Democracy and art in the open air. Now it's time to go back to Woodstock. Really, nobody knew what to expect. And looking back, Walter Cronkite, America's narrator for the last half century, can only give voice to the surprise of it all. The festival was declared a disaster area, and if there had been a riot, the commission that would have investigated it would have probably blamed negligent planning by the promoters, lack of water, food, medical and sanitary facilities, and stormy weather. It would have cited also the abundance of marijuana, some hard drugs, communal living, and the exploitation of thousands of turned-away ticket holders who never got their $18 back. Yet there was no violence, relatively little illness for a population of this size. Three people died, two were born, and in a rare happening, even the police got rave notices. That was how the press saw it, or remembered it, or created a memory for us of the greatest prom concert of all time. The most truthful element in that report is the element of surprise, that there hadn't been a riot. The previous summer in Chicago, at the Democratic Convention, the same sort of people had gathered to demonstrate against the Vietnam War, to agitate for more attention to be paid to the sources of domestic intranquility. There was rioting through the park in the streets. But a sea change had happened since then, so that by the summer of 1969, the good guys seemed to be winning. Now, the counterculture was more complex than the pictures can tell you, or than I have time to go into here. But in that year, between Chicago and Woodstock, its disparate elements, the lifestyle radicals and the political radicals, rode on the same track. Music was politics, and hair was politics, and Marx was politics, and anarchy was politics. Whitman's entire aesthetic summed up the ideals that motivated the time, the sense that the self was the truest arbiter of experience, that one had responsibility for all, that sex in all its forms was good, that to be alive was to want to sing. He even wrote of the glories of not shaving, how splendid to wear a beard. And gathering, driving, plodding towards the big concert were people who, like Whitman, had grown up during another era of great optimism, so confident that they challenged the received wisdom their professors were trying to pass on, people for whom the old forms of expression were inadequate, a concert celebrating the new music, the new songs. That's what Woodstock was. And many who were in the mud at Woodstock would have known this. They would have known because American students read more then, because Whitman's most formal poem, O Captain, My Captain, written with exclamation points after each captain, a piece penned after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, was a set text at school. Many would have known about his perambulations around the young America and would have, in their own time, followed suit. And if they didn't know him directly, they would have been influenced indirectly through the works of writers who acknowledged Whitman as their master, like Henry Miller, who wrote over and over again that his autobiographical journey was indebted to his fellow Brooklynite, or like Thomas Wolfe, still in vogue then, 
whose novels became massive through his unwillingness, like Whitman, to weed out one sense impression or memory, or through the poetry of William Carlos Williams or Allen Ginsberg, the epigram of Howell, Ginsberg's epoch-defining poem, is taken from Song of Myself. And in the same volume as that epic is a short prose poem in which Ginsberg ponders Whitman's legacy while wandering in the aisles in a California supermarket. What thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman, for I walk down the side streets under the trees with a headache self-conscious looking at the full moon. In my hungry fatigue, and shopping for images, I went into the neon fruit supermarket, dreaming of your enumerations. What peaches and penumbras, whole families shopping at night, aisles full of husbands, wives in the avocados, babies in the tomatoes, and you, Garcia Lorca, what were you doing down by the watermelons? Where are we going, Walt Whitman? The doors close in an hour. Which way does your beard point tonight? Will we stroll dreaming of the lost America of love past blue automobiles and driveways home to our silent cottage? Ah, oh, dear father, graybeard, lonely old courage teacher, what America did you have when Sharon quit poling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Leith? In the crowd, there would have been those who knew the carnal link theory, which related Whitman to Ginsburg. The theory went like this. Whitman made love to someone, who made love to someone, who made love to someone, the chain continuing through time to someone who made love to Allen Ginsberg. They would have understood the link between Whitman's cascading images and the wild, free-form lyrics of Bob Dylan in a song like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing And it's a hard, it's a hard it's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rain. And now I'll sing an ironic little song of myself. I was not there. Perhaps that makes my memory of that weekend more accurate. There are millions of Americans of a certain age who will claim to have been at Woodstock. I was not. I was doing a summer term at the small liberal arts college in Ohio that I attended. When the ads for the concert first appeared in the New York Times months before the event, I thought for half a second about splurging out the 18 bucks for a ticket. The idea of a 12-hour drive and a couple of days of sleeping outside with thousands of other people didn't appeal. It didn't stop dozens of folks from college going, including my best friend Dan, who went there in a group, but especially attached to a young woman who I had on occasion flirted with. The people there were in the midst of mud and chaos, not having a particularly good time. But as they abandoned their cars, climbed over the gates, tried to find some dry space underneath a bus to sleep on, they were having their legend carved out for them. Okay, people, we got a times. Okay. On the front page, you have on the left a very big aerial photo of a huge mass of people, which are you. And it says, music was the magic. 
for throngs at Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Towers near the stage hold loudspeakers. 300,000 at Folk Rock Fair camp out in the sea of mud. <laughs> dig it, dig it. Quote, participants well behaved. The crowd which camped on the 600 acre farm of Max Yasger near here for the past three days was well behaved according to both the sponsors and the police even though about 75 persons in the area were arrested mostly on possessing narcotics. Mmm, bummer, bummer. I sat listless in the midsummer torpor of southwestern Ohio. Outside my window, the leaves on the trees were obese with humidity. The occasional breeze barely moved them. I listened with increasing interest to the legend-shaping reports on the radio. Meanwhile, in the soggy fields of Max Yasker's farm, the festival organizers were invoking a sense of community that Whitman would have been proud of in the hopes of making the event pass off smoothly. Now, let's face the situation. We've had thousands and thousands of people come here today. Many, many more than we knew or even dreamt or thought would be possible. We're going to need each other to help each other to work this out because we're taxing the systems that we have set up. We're going to be bringing the food in. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here is that the man next to you is your brother. And you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, then we blow the whole thing, but we've got it right there. Long before Jimi Hendrix closed the show, my friends started straggling back, exhausted and miserable, unaware that they had taken part in a cosmic gathering. As the legend swept America, the discomfort was soon forgotten. My friend Dan came back nursing severe bronchitis that slid into mild pneumonia. He had slept in the mud under a bus and taken chill there, his first account made me feel extremely glad I hadn't gone. But as the days went on and the Woodstock legend grew, Dan's recollection of the underside of that bus was that it was a place of erotic delight with that young woman I had been flirting with. And to this day, I am still slightly jealous. Of course, Woodstock was not a beginning. It was an end. Three months later, another couple of hundred thousand people went to a Rolling Stones concert at Altamont, California there was murder. Needless to say, that was the big concert I attended. Story of my life, really. Other things happened to break the spirit of the time. The war dragged on. People were killed at Kent State. Lifestyle radicals and political radicals drifted away from one another. America was no longer the optimistic place we had grown up in, and a lot of people at Woodstock are still learning to live with the disappointment. Whitman, from his Civil War days, also knew that kind of disappointment. He consoled himself by looking further into the future, beyond his native shore. Years of the modern, years of the unperformed. Your horizon rises. I see it parting away for some august drama. I see not America only, not only Liberty's nation, but other nations preparing. I see tremendous entrances and exits, new combinations, the solidarity of races. I see freedom, completely armed and victorious and very haughty, with law on one side and peace on the other. Uh -huh. 